Hello, Dumb It Down listeners. This is your host, Eric Larson. Today, we are tackling a different topic than usual as a kind of bonus episode because my friend and episode two lead, Vlad Delaroche, is a Ukrainian, born in Ukraine and came over early. So it's a topic he's very passionate on and is very timely, and it is the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I wanted to preface this episode by saying it was reported on Sunday, February 20th, It is now Thursday, February 24th, and things have changed dramatically in the last couple of days. It's still relevant information, and a lot of people are kind of checking in on Vlad as he is a friend of a lot of the listeners. And if you don't know him, he's a very well-spoken, well-educated Ukrainian person who I think speaks very intelligently on the conflict and provides some good information for Americans and, and people who may be listeners of this podcast. So just want to also express condolences to anyone involved in the conflict and uh, hoping for the best outcome. Without further ado, here is Vlad and I's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Dumb It Down podcast. I am your host, Eric Larson, and we've got a bonus episode for you today with my friend here, Vlad DeRoche. And uh, to preface what we're talking about, which is surprisingly the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how it affects us Americans, assuming my podcast audience is mostly American. Um, But but a couple things that should help this relate to the general audience is that the general message of breaking down complex topics like school and work into something more digestible is also applied here, where we're talking about a very complex, nuanced, historical issue And Vlad's going to help us break it down. And there are also some parallels to sustainability when it comes to renewable and non-renewable resources that we'll touch on and um, supply chains. So thinking about this conflict and future conflicts, how that could affect, you know, like semiconductor processing and just, just general things that would relate to work would a conflict escalate. So without getting ahead of ourselves, I'd like to reintroduce Vlad DeRoche from episode two. And uh, Vlad, how are we today? Hey, everybody. Hey, Eric. Um, doing good, man. Um, it's funny because they ask about you know this this whole crisis and how Ukrainians are handling it. Uh, pretty calm, surprisingly, and there are reasons for that which we'll get into. But no, I'm glad to be here, and thanks for having me. Like you said, it's not a very orthodox topic probably to have on this sort of podcast, but I think in the vein of breaking down complex issues and everything you mentioned, hopefully it makes sense enough for me to to yap a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. Well, and of all people to yap about, it should be Vlad for a multitude of reasons. So Vlad, your background, why are you qualified to speak on this? So first, uh, clearly the name probably gives something away, something Eastern away. Uh, Vlad is actually not my real name. My real uh, first name is Volodymyr, which is as Ukrainian as you could possibly get. With the accent. Volodymyr. And so the uh, the reason why I say Vlad is because it's, you know, it makes easier for people to pronounce, but then it's more confusing as to uh, um, deriving where my origins are from. But um, I am from Ukraine. I was was born there. I I lived there until I was nine. I came here in the year 2000. My parents, uh, my dad, and basically my whole family, except for my mom, live in Ukraine still. So in regular contact with them, um, asking about what's going on um, in this conflict. And also clearly because I have a kind of a vested interest in what's going on over there. I follow the uh, news channels, not just the American ones, but also the Ukrainian ones, also the Russian ones, the German ones as well. So I think um, given my interest and uh, the fact that I kind of look at all those different uh, sources, um, it, it helps me kind of, I think, get a pretty well-rounded picture of what's going on. Yeah, well, there's certainly the Ukrainian piece where you are Ukrainian, your dad is still there, you still keep up with those. Uh, the other piece is that Vlad studied in Germany and lived in Germany and so and currently works at BMW with a bunch of Germans. So I think that helps your perspective as well, because you're thinking not only from America and Ukraine, but Germany and other European countries, your wife's from Spain, like you're, he's pretty got a pretty good background to talk about this uh, to a wider audience. The other piece, just to distinguish between Russia and Ukraine, which I know because I've known Vlad a while, but you speak both Ukrainian and Russian, and there's an overlap in the cultures, and obviously the escalation here is on the border, so there are bordering countries, but 
maybe just a little on what the differences are and kind of your mind state. That's a good question, actually. So one of the things that I always get asked is, okay, you're Ukrainian. Do you speak Ukrainian? And so that's a comp. The answer is yes uh, and kind of no. So depending on where you live in Ukraine, the further west you go, the more um, Ukrainian you pretty much get as far as the language. And then the closer you get to Russia, the more people speak Russian. Most Ukrainians can speak both. I am in the club of speaking a little bit of Ukrainian and a lot of Russian. And that is just a function of my parents growing up in the Soviet system dominated by the Russian language. And so they spoke Russian at home and they felt more comfortable doing that. So when we moved to the U.S., of course, uh, we continued in Russian. And so I kind of fell off of the Ukrainian train. Um, but uh, now with the whole situation uh, in the last 10 years, I would say uh, Ukrainian language has definitely gotten a big uh, boost in popularity and importance mm -hmm. because I think the national feeling um, uh, uh, of any typical Ukrainian at this day and age is very different than it was 10 years ago. So people want to feel more Ukrainian, therefore they want to speak more Ukrainian. You'll see more shows dubbed in Ukrainian, you'll see more movies, um, talk shows, you know, podcasts even. So it's, uh, yeah, so that's, there is the overlap there. So clearly Ukraine and Russia have a lot of common history going backwards. I think we'll get into that a little bit later, but yes, um, depending on how you look at it, you can see us as like brotherly nations or you can see us as, um, you know, um, adversarial um, people that live next to each other. So, and we'll get into that. I'm, I'm, I hope. I can't wait to have this podcast dubbed in Ukrainian. That's that's going to be a crowning moment. Vitaly, pani panove. There you go. Sample. Fantastic. Hopefully that was appropriate. Um, well, this. So the topic that we're talking about is all over the news, and I don't even know how to define it or where to start. So I'll I'll tell you what I know, Vlad being the ignorant American, like maybe potentially other listeners, and then we'll have you fill in some gaps. So here's what I know. I get, I get push notifications from news sources and the Wall Street Journal, and they say, you know, there are tensions in Russia and something happened in Crimea 10 years ago. But now what is the latest is that we're actually sending troops over to Europe. So obviously it's very relevant and something that I think I should know more about. So Vlad. I'll have you set the table. What's going on? Well, maybe it might be easier to start with maybe why we should care, right? And I think um, the it's there's a lot of there's a lot of talk right now, and there's a lot of uh, different perspectives, and there's a lot of um, I mean uh, a lot. I've heard a lot of our own friends say, "Hey, you know what? It's a country out there like who that we have our own issues right now. Clearly, with inflation and with Corona and all that stuff. Why should we care about what some country out there in Eastern Europe?" how they defend themselves against Russia. I mean, how does it affect us? And so to kind of set the stage, I would say that the importance of having this discussion is A, that um, this conflict I think has a lot bigger uh, consequences on the bigger global stage. So the historical parallel that I think you can pull here is what happened right up to World War II um, in Europe, right? We had um, basically the, uh, the prime minister of, um, Great Britain, right before Churchill, Neville Chamberlain, uh, you know, basically leading a policy of appeasement towards, uh, Nazi Germany, which eventually led to the start of World War II. Um, so that is a potential outcome of this situation. And that's in the worst case. The best case scenario is if we don't handle this situation right, as speaking as America here, mm -hmm. if we don't handle the situation right, this could mean a decline in our, in our, um, I would say international power, our foreign policy, our the decline essentially of the American hegemony. Which uh, do you have a definition out there, Handy? Yeah, this is a word we've bounced around, but hegemony. Shout out to my dad for teaching me at this at some point. Is leadership or dominance, especially by one country or social group, over others? And so, with this, with this American he hegemony, hegemony. Uh, if we don't play our cards right here with Russia, we will see a decline in that. And that means uh, bolder enemies, like, let's say, geopolitical enemies like China that will feel, let's say, more comfortable uh, moving more aggressively against Taiwan. Or, and at the same time, our allies losing confidence in us and not feeling like they can be protected by us, not feeling they can rely on us. If they come into a similar situation, that means they might have to make their own deals. Uh, some dirty deals with Russia, with China, with whoever. So I think the best case scenario is, uh, you know, 
maybe on the lower end of the risky scenarios, we have you know a, a decline of American uh, power abroad. And in the worst case scenario, we can see this escalating into a worldwide conflict comparable to World War III. So that's the importance. So to summarize, this, this parallels what happened for World War II, which we'll talk about. And this kind of thing could escalate to a World War III, which is, you know, maybe right now it seems a little bit outlandish. But uh, from talking to Vlad, I have started caring more. And uh, I think that it's, it's helpful information for everyone. And another piece, just to steal your thunder, but the way that the media has covered this topic, for the little sound bites that I get and probably a lot of the audience, isn't necessarily how it should be covered, according to Vlad. So given that, thank you for backing us up to why should Americans care? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what is actually happening now. So go ahead. Yep, that's, that's exactly, that's perfectly well staged. So what is happening now is we'll start again with just kind of the the lay of the land what we see now in this moment and then we'll kind of start backing up um, historically backing up maybe even politically and economically so what's happening right now is we have russia since um i think late november of last year has been amassing uh huge numbers of military personnel and equipment on the ukrainian border right so um this means about altogether 100,000 uh troops in total this includes tanks, this includes artillery, artillery, this includes attack helicopters, all kinds of stuff. And it's, and it's surrounding Ukraine on three sides. Uh, one of the things, this force, these forces were built up kind of gradually. So they had military exercises with a country called Belarus at, and to the north of Ukraine. They had joint exercises. And then after the, those exercises were done, they kept the forces in place, the Russian forces. So that's to the north of Ukraine. To the east, Russia has already destabilized an eastern part of Ukraine, and on the, on, uh, not too far from that area, they have mobilized more troops. And then, of course, in the south, they took Crimea in 2014, and they have their, uh, they've also bolstered their troop uh, numbers there, uh, their Navy forces as well. So, so by destabilized, so I know they annexed Crimea. I'm not exactly sure what that means. But what, is, what does the destabilization mean? They haven't actually invaded, but they're thinking about it? That's a good question. So... This is where it gets tricky and complicated. I'm sure when you guys look at the news bites, you get your little update, your little whatever, your uh, uh, Associated Press, you know, crunch in the morning where you just have like kind of the big bullet points of what happened that day. What you see, you have to be able to link to history to, able to have an understanding of what is going on in context. And so when I mean this destabilization of Eastern Ukraine is that in 2014, late 2013, early 2014, what happened was Ukraine had this, um, this, this essentially these big uh, demonstrations, these big protests against R Ukrainian politics moving further and further towards Russia and not more aggressively towards the West. The West for Ukrainians, for a lot of Ukrainians, most Ukrainians symbolizing rule of law, symbolizing prosperity, you know, a effective form of capitalism, political freedoms, all that sort of thing. So when that huge demonstrations were started the the president the pro president uh, pro russian president of rush of ukraine at the time whoa almost yeah got that one <laughs> right um he was ousted and so after he was ousted russia started to destabilize and when i mean destabilize that meant they were sending in their special forces into eastern ukraine they were supporting separatist forces there that would take over town halls they would block off uh critical uh roads and basically uh, started their own little breakaway piece of the nation in the east. And in the south, they completely outright annexed Russian forces wearing Russian gear, but they took off the little uh, sticker that had the Russian flag on it. And initially they denied it and they said that it was just, you know, it was just the uh, local militia forces that were fighting for the freedom of Crimea. Later, it was admitted by Putin himself that oh. these were clearly Russian men. And so it was an outright. Um, in the case of Crimea, outright annexation of a land. And then in the case of Donbass, as they call it, the Don Donbass and Lugansk region of eastern Ukraine was more of a muddy uh, destabilization, a frozen conflict. If you hear that word, that's a buzzword, is a frozen conflict where it's not controlled by Ukrainian forces. And so it remains basically this no man's land, this wild, wild east um, that is supported by Russia, funded by Russia. Um, weapons funded by Russia. And when you guys, I don't know if you guys remember the down, uh, when that plane went down, got shot down by anti-aircraft missiles, the Air uh, Malaysia was shot down. Okay. That was shot down exactly in that destabilized eastern part 
by Russian-made um, anti-aircraft uh, weapons. So that's kind of st- setting the stage of what I mean by destabilization, at least in the last 10 years. And I guess maybe clarifying why that's bad would be worthwhile. Um, you know, Ukraine as a right, as a sovereign nation, but if Russia's coming in, it doesn't sound like they're making it better. Would you agree? Yes. So, and I think here we might need to talk about kind of the general, with, with the general uh, strokes of what, uh, let's say, Russia's doing versus what they're saying they're doing and the arguments for, you know, why Russia's escalating aggression ever since they annexed, you know, Crimea and uh, destabilized Eastern Ukraine. So the essential argument here that Russia is playing with is that Russia is scared. Russia's terrified. Putin is terrified because NATO has been moving further and further east ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, right? America had promised, America and NATO had promised Russia they would not expand NATO further eastward, and they broke their promise. Now... So NATO came about at the end of World War II as a group of countries that kind of said, F you, Russia? Exactly. So... What does moving eastward mean, too? Very good. All good questions. So <laughs> what does that all mean? So first of all, what was the purpose of NATO? And what is NATO, right? So NATO was founded at the end of World War II, North, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, in order to basically um, um, consolidate all the, the allies after the Second World War II that were uh, democratic, um, kind of Western countries against the, the the rising power in the East, the Soviet Union, right? At that point, they had very very formidable uh land-based army um you know it was it was they could uh, i mean you there was a real threat of war in europe at the time you know world war three at, at the time so this is after world war ii or after, this yeah directly after because we were kind of friends at that point so there was a period well and this it, it gets really complicated but basically it was uh the enemy of your enemy is your friend right so the reason why, okay. so the initial alliance was americans and the british and the french against uh, the and with the soviet union against the nazis then of course if the nazis were defeated then who's the next enemy right the enemy of your enemy is your friend but now that enemy is gone so now you have my just my enemy so you were basically left with uh the soviet union now, the soviet union and the worldviews of the soviet union and the western countries were so different that they cannot be reconciled and so it initially it started with um, you know some basically some political and economic um, actions, but eventually what it ended up with is a split. The Iron Curtain, as Churchill put it in nineteen I think forty seven or forty nine, is essentially Russia and the Soviet Union shut down their their part of the of the world, and in turn um, the West had organized their own treaties, their own alliances in order to counteract um, the the Soviet Union and their and their power. So NATO kind of was born in trying to limit the military power of the Soviet Union. And by limiting the military power, meaning it was the the idea of the alliance was that if one country was attacked, all the other countries would have to come to its aid. So of course, America being the number one country. So if East at the at the time Western Germany, part of NATO, if it was attacked by the Soviet Union, America would have to come to its aid. France would have to come to its aid. Great Britain would have to come to its aid. And so that is of course a huge deterrent a deterrent meaning it ha- is, a, is a huge reason not to attack that country because knowing the consequences you'll face of a much bigger country coming to its aid makes it a lot less likely for a country like the Soviet Union to try to attack Western Germany or a- any other country in the NATO alliance like France. Um, so that was the idea, at least back then, you know, shortly after World War II. And now it's moving eastward, which means... So now it's moving eastward, meaning after this collapse of the Soviet Union. The reunification of, of Germany, and also I think in 1990 or 1991, you have all these countries that were no longer in the orbit of, of Russia. The Soviet Union itself was a conglomeration of different states that now they got that split off. Ukraine being one of them. So once that split happened in 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union. Not only did the Warsaw Pact, which is basically the equivalent of NATO, was formed or sorry was disbanded. Also, Soviet Union collapsed on its own, and all these states became independent. So. The fear at the time, and now what Russia, what Putin is saying, is that they were afraid that the West would take advantage of this weakened state of Russia, and they would expand NATO eastward, meaning get these countries, kind of force, this is the implication here that Russia is making, is that it forced these countries, these Eastern European countries like Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, right. and you, well, Ukraine is not part of NATO, oh. but we'll get to that. And so kind of 
kind of strong arm them into becoming a NATO uh, alliances, meaning that now America can put troops in any of those countries if they wanted to. And of course, if that country is on the border of Russia, now there's American troops right on the border with Russia. That's scary stuff. That's scary shit for Russia. And that's kind of their perspective. And that's what they're kind of saying now. Okay. So all of those countries that you listed are a part of NATO, are protected a little bit in case Russia wants to invade again, which they did many years ago. And now Russia is playing the victim saying that Ukraine's going to be next. That's exactly right. So what, and if, and, and this is kind of, um, when we talked about kind of when we talked before this podcast, when you look at an issue like this, a complicated geopolitical military issue in, um, you know, between countries that have a very long history together, how do you break that apart and, and bite off a piece that you can chew, that you can analyze, that you can understand? And I think part of that is um, understanding that you have to look at the actions, just like what your mom told you when you were a five-year-old, look at the person's actions as opposed to what they're saying. So judge a person by the actions, not by their words. That's exactly what we should be doing here more actively, more deliberately here with what Russia is saying, what Russia is doing. So in this case, what you just mentioned is Russia's threatened. Russia is saying that it's worried that Ukraine is going to be the next country in NATO, meaning that there's a potential of more troops you know, being flooded into that country and right on the border of Russia. That's scary shit. Considering the fact that Russia was invaded by Germany, right, and it used and it went through those countries in order to get to Russia, considering that even back to Napoleonic times, that's exactly what Napoleon did, right? He went through those countries that were loyal to him or that were taken over by him and they just marched into Russia. So that, that's their perspective. However, if you look at the actual data, the first thing that we only already kind of touched on, which is that NATO is a defensive alliance, meaning that if Ukraine, which is not part of NATO, and this is important, we'll get into that later, NATO's not part of uh, Ukraine, or Ukraine's not part of NATO, but if it was, Ukraine couldn't just attack Russia and then expect all the other countries to join them in attacking Russia. Article 5, I think it's called, in the NATO um, basically charter, means that if you are only, the other countries are liable to protect you only if you get attacked. So if you actively invade a country, there's nothing that uh, the other countries can do for you, and they won't do. They're not, they're not, they're, they don't need to do. So it's a intrinsically defensive alliance that is that has no um any no no language in the charter that says that you know when you attack a country you get supported by the countries that's the first point second point even though as far as which countries have joined nato that has expanded eastward meaning po countries that i mentioned poland lithuania latvia have joined nato what you're seeing is actually a drawdown of american forces you have to understand in 1989 America had something like 300,000 troops in Western Germany, 300,000 troops. I don't know how many thousand tanks, how much, um, uh, how many, you know, how many um, fighter jets, how many bombers we had in Europe, I, massive numbers. In now in Germany, especially after the Trump administration, we have something like less than 40,000 troops in Germany proper. So you have a tenfold decrease of the troop numbers. You have a massive decrease in the amount of uh, land, uh, artillery, uh, any kind of land uh, technology that we have as far as military technology, tanks, armored personnel carriers, uh, artillery, drastically decreased. Um, so you have to, so if you look, if you're just looking at those, if you're paying attention to what they're saying, it sounds like NATO's encroaching and NATO's about to clamp down and bite down on Russia. But in reality, even though geographically those countries are coming closer and closer to Russia, effectively the numbers of those troops and the actual military effectiveness is has gone down significantly so that's not a fair characterization of 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 the threat that russia is facing so russia is led by putin he's a dictator and he's trying to convey this message to his country that their power as russia is being encroached upon and regardless of what his messaging is vlad's saying to look at the actions and I think that the, the reasons for this happening is important, too. So Putin is a dictator who wants to, you said, expand power or maintain power and expand power. So if he feels that his world's being threatened, his reaction is to fight back. Is that what's happening here? Yeah. And this is go going back to the previous point, which is I'm frustrated with the way the media has been dealing with this. And I think it's I, maybe a function of the 24-hour news cycle. But a lot of these little blurbs and articles and YouTube uh, um, little clips basically focus on something very, very, very specific and sometimes not very consequential. I know that CNN focused for a while on the on the fact that 
like the Russian foreign minister and Putin were writing down their demands on paper, which is like a, a unusual thing to do. And they were focusing, what does that mean? It's unprecedented. Does, you know, and then they sent it to America. And if they don't reply within a week, what does that mean? All the stuff that's kind of just really just noise. And it doesn't have anything to do uh, with what's actually going, is happening, what's happening and is going to happen. And so when you look at it that way, um, you really have to, you really, when you, and when you look at what Putin actually wants, and when you look at what the media is saying, and you know, you have these questions, oh, what is the strategic, uh, what is this end game? What is, what is the strategy here? What is he trying to gain? What has he gained? What does he want to gain? All this stuff. It's also, that's a lot of noise because nobody knows, nobody knows what Putin wants out of this situation in particular. But what we do know him being the dictator that he is, and I hope that's an uncontroversial thing to say here, hopefully no Russian-Americans listening to this, uh, is that he wants to, like you said, keep his power and maintain his power. And how do you keep and you maintain your power? You, A, you control the media in your country, check. B, you get rid of any political opposition, any worthwhile political opposition, check, right? Navalny, I, I think probably most of us have heard the story where he first got poisoned, his underpants had like, the Novichok uh, nerve agent in it, Uh-oh. and he went into a coma. He had to be Putin? Navalny. He was the number one opposition leader against Putin. Poisoned, and then he. This guy had the balls to come back to Russia, and then he was jailed immediately for some tr- charges that he didn't pay. He didn't show up in court five years ago. Just something super politically motivated. So, if you're trying to keep and, and expand power, you first control the media. Second, get rid of the political opposition. Check, check, and then what do you do as far as foreign, foreign policy? You weaken your enemies. And who are your enemies? It's America, it's NATO, and then everything in between. So you have a bunch of countries in the East touching uh, basically on on the borderland of Russia and the West, where you have the potential for prosperity, potentially. And these countries, if these countries are to be prosperous, Ukraine being the the very, very obvious example, if these countries were to develop um, into healthy, democratic uh, countries with a healthy economy, with a rule of law system, investments infrastructure, start having their own exports, all that stuff, you could see a situation where the younger people, especially in Russia, are looking at a country like Ukraine that's doing better. It's a country that's smaller, that has, let's say, less less of a dramatic um, you know, history than Russia and, and think, how are these guys doing better than us? And, and so that's a very scary thing for Putin because he wants to be seen as the guy who brings the prosperity. And unfortunately, his prosperity, the prosperity he brings to his people is based on the amount of gas he can sell. Um, and that is, that's all they, they've got. I mean, try to name any export from Russia besides vodka, um, petroleum, or suicidal novelists. Um, you know, <laughs> DM me and tell me. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so we touched on a lot there. So... <laughs> really dumbing it down. Why is Russia bad? Um, I think Vlad made a good point that, right, he takes out his opposition either by jailing or by killing. So that's not really something you want. Why should, you know, Vlad, you're, you're pro-Ukraine, of course. You want your, your country or one of your countries to succeed. But if we're over here in the U.S., is this something we should just say like, oh, you know, deal with it yourselves? Why should the U.S. be involved? And Maybe what are the consequences if we don't get involved, although we already are? So um, that, that's a very, 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 very good question. Very, very hard to summarize, but that's right. why we're here, right? So again, this is for, I'm sure for many, many Russian Americans, this is, this is a hard pill to swallow. But what it, what it comes down to is that Putin is, is, is basically testing the waters, right? And, and when, when you see in the media, people are saying, what is a strategic goal? Really what he, he doesn't have a strategic goal. Like there's a really good commentator, um, actually Kasparov, he was a former chess master and he was a, actually a former political opposition to Putin. And then he fled to the US. He breaks it down this way. He says that Putin is not a great chess player, but he is a great poker player. And that's exactly what's going on here. So Russia is probing, um, probing the West, probing NATO, probing the U.S. in particular um, to see where the weak points are, see where they can poke, poke, poke harder. So why now, right? Because we got Biden has low approval numbers here in the U.S. You have the French president who needs to go through re- re-election this year. You have the German chancellor who just became chancellor early this, you know, in the, within the last few months. So he can't make any kind of risky moves. 
gas prices are, are high right now. They have Russia has a lot of federal uh, currency right now on reserve. So if they go to war, they can maintain a war for some time. And Ukraine's own president is actually not very popular right now. So, and it's the winter when people need gas the most to heat their homes in Europe. So, is, is the current president pro Russia? The current president is a little ambiguous. So he is, yeah. But he, he's, yeah. We don't have to touch yeah. going to the, but, but he is not very popular right now. Is the point? And uh, he he actually kind of tried to lead a politics of somewhat appeasement and trying to like talk with Putin directly, um, which never, never actually worked out. So the point here is Russia is, is just like, and I, we talked about this before, Russia, if you want to look at this and break it down, Russia is basically a, a bully. And when you have a bully, if you I mean, imagine like a high school situation and you have a bully, right? When a, a guy, a, like I got, you know, kind of semi-bullied in high school and the way it started was, oh. I know it's a very tragic story, but <laughs> Basically, so they, a bully doesn't choose their target based on like they, a bully doesn't come up to a random person and just go, Hey, give me your lunch money. It's, it's a, it's a ladder of escalation, right? Until they get to the point where they can feel like you're basically soft enough or weak enough to where they can take your lunch money. So in my case, I had a lunchbox that had a, a Superman symbol on it. And, uh, and I was like a little kid who hasn't hit puberty yet, you know, and in freshman year. So of course they're like, okay, this guy making fun of my lunchbox. I, I did not have any response. And then it just, it was a ladder of escalation. Oh no. So, and then if, if we're comparing my, my high school trauma to the situation, um, it's Russia is a bully. And basically what Russia is doing now, it's, it's walking throughout the halls of the high school and it's bumping into the NATO members and, and even NATO, uh, let's say partners like Ukraine and checking them with their shoulder. And when, you know, let's say uh, America just goes, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean to walk into your, in, in your path. Then Russia's like, all right, let's see what else I can do. And then it steps, then Russia steps on your, sh on your fresh white Nikes. And you, and then if you go, oh, I'm, oh, my bad. And if you apologize for getting your Nike stepped on, then Russia's like, dude, I can do whatever I want to do. So that's what we're in a situation now where we have to. And now I'm combining a bullying example with a historical example in uh, pre-World War II. But if we're looking at a politics of appeasement versus a politics of um, of unity and uh, consequence, then we have to be absolutely resolute. We have to be absolutely clear about the consequences, not, not only that we're willing to impose if they attack, but also that we're going to impose while, while we see the aggression rising that's completely manufactured by Russia. So... Does that answer your question? <laughs> There's a lot of there. There's a lot there. Yeah, well, and, and for the, the bystanders like me and others, it seems that, right, Putin is kind of pushing others to try to get his way. And the downside for the U.S. is that if Russia gains a lot of power, America loses power. And I think that, that we mentioned the term hegemony earlier, but if if the basic tenant I believe in and you believe in and maybe some of our listeners is that a U.S. kind of backed country or organization or NATO or whatever it is, is superior to a dictator because we have different values. And what America values, in addition to your capitalism, kind of enables it, but they value you know, the right to free speech and not controlling the press and all of the other rights that we take for granted, honestly here in America. And that's why I think Vlad's perspective is so interesting because he's, he's seen both sides of it. So given all of that, what is happening now is, is the poking, is the bullying, and it could escalate to a full-on brawl in the, the lunchroom, I guess. So my question that we touched on a little is like this specific conflict, you know, Crimea already happened and, and what, what were the, that didn't affect America. We just kind of moved on. So now if you said before, kind of a, your, your take was that it could lead to World War III, and there's some historical precedent for that. Did we touch on the historical precedent? Let's, let's, how, how could that happen? Mm -hmm. So this is, and, and th this is kind of, the answer to that question is a response to a lot of the people, a lot of the isolationists that, sure. and some of them are friends that say, hey, like, who, like, who cares? Who, who cares about Ukraine? It's a small country. We yeah. got bigger problems here lo locally. And the answer to that question is, uh, historical precedent. So if you look at, uh, you know, Neville Chamberlain, who's the predecessor to Winston Churchill, um, basically allowing uh, Hitler to go into the Sudetenland, which is a piece of Czechoslovakia at the time, and making him sign a little piece of paper that says, hey, we're not going to attack uh, any more territories. We're not going to invade any more territories. Of course, then fast forward a few months, takes the whole Czechoslovakia, 
takes Austria and then eventually invades Poland, right? So that's the situation that we were faced in, in World War, right before World War II, led to World War II. We find ourselves in a very eerily similar situation where basically Ukraine is like the Sudetenland. And if we just have uh, Putin right now, if we, we have a similar, let's say a Neville Chamberlain-like leader that goes, hey, it's just a little piece of Ukraine, who cares? Just Putin sign this piece of paper and just promise you won't take any more territory. You'll have the same thing happen again. And the, I mean, the reasons for that are, I mean, it's with, oof, man. You got it? Let, let me, let me, break? yeah, let me take a little break. Okay. So we'll cut this part. Yep. Which leads us to kind of why does America care? Like, how could this actually lead to World War III? So, I mean, just like if we're, again, look, using the historical perspective and looking at 1938 as an example, with Neville Chamberlain getting that little piece of paper from Hitler saying that he will not invade any more countries past the little piece of Czechoslovakia. Um, we don't know. If we don't do anything, we don't know exactly how this will escalate into a further um, military actions or destabilization of other countries. We just don't know that. Just like probably people speculating in 1938 that knew there was a war coming, couldn't tell you exactly where the flashpoint was going to be. The point here is that we shouldn't focus so much on all the nitty gritty details because a lot of that stuff is theater and theater that the media kind of plays off of and obfuscates uh, what we're really trying to deal with here, which is to understand that Putin is an authoritarian figure, an authoritarian figure with very clear, very simple motivations, which is to stay in power and to expand his power. And if you're looking at that, if after Ukraine, let's say he's able to topple Ukraine, if Moldova's next, or let's say Latvia's next, Latvia is a good example. It's a NATO country. It's got, I think, over 30% of their population as are Russian nationals, right? So they have dual citizenship. So imagine a situation where Russia Knowing that Ukraine came down so easily, Russia goes, well, you're mistreating our Russian citizens in Latvia. And, um, and then they start sending, I don't know, um, they start uh, push, pushing their propaganda in to say that the Latvians are repressing their people. And then all of a sudden, just like in Ukraine in the east, a little small town somewhere, all of a sudden, there's some kind of mobilization of the local militia forces, which actually are supported by, or if not are even mm -hmm. Russian special forces and they take a little town. And, these, and then when Latvia goes, hey, this is an act of war, Russia's like, what are you talking about? You were, it's been over a year since you've been repressing our people. And what do you expect, what do you, what do you expect is going to happen? Of course, these people are going to rise up. We had nothing to do with it. We had zero to do with it. And if you have such a... Is Latvia and NATO? And Latvia is a NATO country. But if you have a situation like that in the next five years, if Ukraine, if we lose this whole Ukraine conflict... What is NATO supposed to do? It's not a clear, are we at war? Are we not at war? So how do you, are you willing to go to war with Russia over something that's so muddy? The hope is that, that you do, that there is some kind of response, but it's not clear. And, and I think for Putin, he's right now, it's, he, is, he is pushing outwards, playing poker, and he's pushing out, and he's seeing who blinks, basically. Bluffing. He's bluffing. And he's looking at who's, who's uh, he's potentially not bluffing. So he might have a ha strong hand. We don't know. Okay. But- he, whatever his strongest hand can be is not as strong as what we have together, united. But we are less ready to go to war because we don't want to go to war. Russia, Putin will do anything to maintain his power and to expand his power, including going to war. So that option is always on the table. When you ask, when you see this on the news, when you see, hey, you know, when you see this from the Biden administration all the time, next Wednesday, there's going to be war. Next Wednesday, Russia is going to attack Ukraine. And the reason why they're doing that is not because it's they're trying to... Um, you know, throw false information in there. It's because even Russia, Putin doesn't know if he wants to go to war with Ukraine or not. It depends on what is happening and how the, uh, the, the, the opposition reacts, right? In opposition meaning NATO, meaning Germany, France, the US. So it's always on the table. And it could be that next, next Wednesday, he does have the plans. And then the goal of the Biden administration, I think, is to say, hey, they're planning an attack. And then Russia's like, oh shit, they're onto us. We can't do it this Wednesday. And then of course, their propaganda machine says, look at, look, at how, look at all the hysteria in the West. Look at all the hysteria. They've said three times we're going to attack. We haven't attacked. Look at them. They're so crazy. They hate Russia. Russia, Russia phobia. Ah! So how does this lead to World War III? We can't say for sure, but all, all we can say and that we should understand and we should proceed from this moment on is that it's Putin's ultimate goals are very simple and 
his actions have so far shown that he's willing to go to war to to in order to uh, distract, even from the fact that Ukraine has has had a piece of their land annexed. We're not even talking about that anymore, right. except for this podcast for a little bit. Is nobody's talking about that? Everybody's focused on making sure this next escalation doesn't happen, forgetting the fact that an escalation by Russia in the past has already happened, where a piece of land was taken from Ukraine by Russia. So in that way, Russia's already gained something. They've already won a little piece from from that informational warfare. Now the conversation has shifted. And the more that it, yeah, the more that this goes on, the more we risk losing in, in, in those ways. In some ways, we probably don't understand. Yeah, I think, I think that's it right there to kind of summarize. So lots could happen and it's unclear, but stuff has happened to this point, which has probably emboldened Putin, not to mention other powers that, don't have the same intentions as the U.S. And the whole isolationist piece of the U.S., why and if we should be a hegemony, would just be way more than one podcast. So we won't be convincing anyone of that. But to, to kind of look forward, I, I think you've touched on it, but to crystallize it, you know, what, what should we do now? I think the answer is we should have a strategy that focuses on, you know, the, the whole us and our allies together should have a strategy that focuses on combating Russia, as opposed to just what the media is covering, at least, which is little like, you know, sound bites of what has happened or what will happen without looking at the full picture. Is that what you say we should do forward? Is there anything else to supplement? Well, I think there's a, there's a few pieces of that. One piece is we have to understand the bigger picture and we have to understand, hopefully this conversation is helping with that and, and it hasn't been too scattered, but clearly I have a bias, right? And which is, which is, you know, tilted against Russia, but it's there's a lot of it there's a lot of informational warfare in our own 24-hour news cycle as well as everything else polarization in, in the current political sphere has not helped to d crystallize this issue so i think understanding that uh, what's going on and the intentions of russia and the actions and again i say i can't say this enough if there's one thing you can take away from uh, our conversation hopefully it's judging people or countries by their actions, not their words, is sage advice, not only for individuals, but also for these nations. And Russia is the perfect case study for such a thing. And uh, I mean, you have to understand also one, one fun fact, uh, talking about like actions and what they're actually saying is Russia's playing victim. They're saying NATO's expanding east. Here's what they're not telling you. Um, when Russia, when you hear Russia doing is doing exercises with a partner country, like with Kazakhstan, with Belarus, with whoever, they end a lot of their exercises, right? There's a theme to it. There's a theme. Hey, it's a winter, uh, and it's there. And there, there is literally a theme. There's one um, where they, uh, one of their exercises, they're they're fighting Finland, and they end it by dropping a nuclear missile on the on the capital city. What? Sorry, not not Finland, Poland. So there's one exercise where they have like where they drop a nuclear weapon on the on the capital of Poland. So. So can you imagine talking about escalation and, and, and so it's, it's really hilarious and you have to understand, again, the actions over the words of when Russia's playing victim at the same time, they're playing, they're doing exercises where they're saying, we're going to bomb the capital of Poland if, if it comes to that. So and what kind of an escalation is that? So understanding first that there's shit like that going on, uh, but, all, but, and then taking that and then, and then moving to the next level, which is we have been very reactive. And a lot of stuff, and again, the media doesn't help with this, is, oh my God, this letter, Russia actually wrote a letter. Uh, what do we do with that? And is this, this an un unprecedented thing? Usually it's just verbal, but now it's a letter. What do we do? No, we need to really understand what Russia is and all the countries that border Russia and what our goal is. Do we want to have, if our goal is to have prosperous nations in Eastern Europe, as Ukraine, for example, if that is our goal, then... We need to live by that. So if Russia is threatening those goals of Ukraine being a Western country, being allied with, with the West, if we want to have that as a reality, we need to react, react not reactively, but proactively to Russia. And whenever the escalation starts to happen, we have sanctions, packages of sanctions ready to go proactively and not waiting now and saying, okay, once you attack, we're going to do this. And granted, I think the Biden administration has been pretty good by sending without waiting they're sending you know weapons they're sending they're bolstered the troops. troop numbers all that stuff so i think the one piece is to understand that there's informational warfare going on and we need to understand we need to not pay attention to noise but really understand the motivations which are very simple for russia and the second piece of that is 
we need to understand, we need to have a strategy going forward that allows us to act proactively and move towards that goal strategically, whatever that strategic goal is for Ukraine, for uh, Moldova, all the countries that Russia wants to maintain in their, in their sphere of influence, which I might remind you, just because they want to keep something in their sphere of influence doesn't mean they want that country to be democratic or free or prosperous, mm-hmm. as long as they're aligned with them. I mean, Belarus is a great example. That country is immiserated economically. And has a dictator still, the oldest dictator in all of Europe still. So what Ukraine wants and what Ukraine needs and what America is willing to offer is a better view of the future under American power, which has shown in Europe to cause prosperity, cause a rule of law, investments, and just a general increased quality of life for their citizens. So when you're looking at a country that wants that and you have you see Russia trying to stop that, I think the you know our actions from there should be pretty clear. I think that's a pretty good point to end on. And I'm blessed to be American. <laughs> We've done some good in the world. And we brought Vlad over too, which is, uh, which is probably the best thing the U.S. has done. Uh, any other final points? I think we covered a lot. But what do you think? Um, yeah, there's a lot. And I think if there's anything I could add is that um, it is a, such a big issue that has so many moving pieces and it changes daily that it's really tough. And I mean, we, we went back and forth uh, a lot as far as how do we kind of crystallize this? How do you summarize this? How do you, you know, chew off a piece that we can bite and chew and, and eat properly? And it's tough, as you can see. So I think when you guys are looking at, uh, again, I would, I would leave this podcast with just, you know, really, if there's one lens you can look through looking at these issues moving forward is, is make sure to look at the actions rather than the words of any particular uh, party in this, in this conflict and, uh, and just get educated. I mean, there's so much information. There's so many great, I mean, you don't have to read anything. There's YouTube videos where it shows kind of uh, the development of the situation. It shows um, the history. Um, I mean, you have to understand. I mean, one thing I would, fun fact I'd leave on is one of the things that a lot of journalists are are pulling out right now is there was a op-ed in the Washington Post, I think, or the New York Times that Putin had put in like 2014, 15, and it basically talked about like, hey, why is it that Russia and Ukraine have so much conflict? Because if you look at America, if you look at America and Canada, super like they speak the same language, super friendly. If you look at Germany and Austria, same language, super friendly. Why is it that Ukraine and, Ru- and Russia, almost same language, not friendly? What happened? And his point was that the West is destabilizing Ukraine. The West is, is manipulating Ukraine. Uh, in order to cause a division between the two countries. But in reality, um, it, that and that sounds like a pretty, I mean, when you just hear that, it's like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Like, why aren't Ukraine and Russia, you know? And, and the, the other point he raised was, well, imagine if, imagine if Canada tried to join an alliance with China. What would, what would Russia, what, what would America do if Canada or Mexico joined a Chinese alliance? What would, what would they do? How aggressive would America be if that happened, right? Which you think, right? Good question, right? Which, which I'm like, when I heard that, I was like, damn it. Shit. I was like, damn it, that's really good. But here, but that. but here's the, but this is again when we and the point, the other point, the common thread in this in this podcast, I think, is the historical aspect. If you ignore history, that all sounds like a really tantalizing argument. However, Canada and America, Canada and the U.S. have a really good relationship, a non-belligerent relationship, at least in the last 100 years. Same thing with Mexico. Uh, and if you look at the relationship between Ukraine and Russia in the last 100 years, in the 1930s, mass starvation, millions of Ukrainians dead, wow. right? By a policy that was focused on Ukrainians. Millions died. Millions in the 1930s. We're talking about the suppression of the Ukrainian language, the Ukrainian culture. If you were a poet in the 17th century, 18th century, and you try to write in Ukrainian, you're, you're going to be messed up. You're, you're, you're going to disappear. Suppression. I mean, there was they moved Ukrainians out of Ukraine. They moved Russians in to make sure that there was more homogeneity. Homogeneity. Hegemony. Not hegemony. There's a lot of ha. But the point is that Ukraine and Russia have a very, very dark history together, mostly of oppression of Ukraine by Russia. This history that's not shared with Canada and the U.S. So, and these are the little arguments. That you really that 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 are at the center at the center of this propaganda machine that Putin's done very well at, and again I think that's 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 kind of the the goal. If there's anything I can I can I can recommend is focus on know your history and and really pay attention to the to the actions and not the words. And I think you come out a lot more wiser for it. And I think you can judge these situations a lot with a lot more, I think a lot more grace. 
So if you're doing your own personal research, <laughs> you know, may, maybe maybe the anyone who wasn't as familiar with this issue is now. So that, there's something to be said for that, too. And Vlad mentioned a couple articles, um, which we can include in the links if you got anything. I know I read one article and actually a book called Red Notice by Bill Browder, who has recently submitted an article that I sent to you, Vlad. And um, I, I thought he had a pretty good solution, too. So a lot, very complex topic. Hopefully we've dumbed it down. I'm sure we've confused some folks as well, but I think <laughs> I think we've educated. So that's good. Vlad's educated because he's helped me too. So thanks, Vlad. Yeah, thank you very much. And on that note, um, I think there's a lot of articles out there. That's a good one that you mentioned already, Red Notice. But just uh, a few people that if you want to just Google, and they usually have really good commentary on as far as what's going on between Ukraine and Russia. We're talking about Anne Applebaum. She wrote a, a, a few books about the what the basically the tyrannical regimes of the Soviet Union did to the Ukrainian people. There's um, Gary Kasparov, who is a, a chess champion, who also was a opposition politician to in Russia until he moved to the U.S. Has a lot of really sage things to say about the issue. Uh, and then you also have um, Timothy Snyder, who is a I think he's a, a professor at I think Yale, but again he wrote a, a book called Bloodlands. Uh, where all these dictators like Hitler and Stalin, how many people they killed and kind of the motivations and um, the, the mayhem they caused. So Ann Applebaum, Timothy Snyder, Gary Kasparov, those three people, um, if you if if you can, you know, between the three of them, a few uh, YouTube videos, lectures, I think you'd be um, very educated as far as the kind of uh, aggression that Ru Russia has given Ukraine in the last hundreds of years. So how about following Vlad DeRoche? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, please, please feel free to follow me on, uh, uh Instagram at, uh, Vladi Yankee, and, uh, I will ask, answer all of your Russian Ukrainian questions. <laughs> and, uh, and, and to be clear, uh, you know, you have to separate Putin and Russia. You know, I mean, my stepdad is Russian, my brother is half Russian. So, I mean, I, I, I get along with Russians just fine. I talk with them all the time, but it's, this is bigger than that. This is, you know, the politics of Putin, because when you talk about what Russia wants, what America wants, America, it's eventually Biden has to answer to the, he has to answer to the people, right? And if it, and he won't get reelected if he botches this up. Putin doesn't have that problem, right? He kind of does his actions and then he changes the media to reflect what he's doing. So it's a top to bottom approach versus bottom to top. And I think that's important to know um, that in these situations, it's, the people you have to kind. There's some separation between the people and and Putin because they're not the same thing, and you do have a basically a dictator. Um, but then you also have the people that are heavily influenced by the uh, the propaganda, and they're saying the same things that Putin would say. So, mm, yeah. Basically, what I'm saying is to all my R Russian brothers and sisters, uh, no hard feelings, but uh, you know, it's uh, Russia's the aggressor here, pretty clearly. So. I'm glad you said that. Yes, I can continue being friends with all of my Russian friends as well, which I may not have any. Uh, but I think, yeah, the politics of Putin might actually be the title for the episode. I think that's that's kind of the important takeaway here. Cool. Thanks, Vlad. Glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me. And until uh, next time. Bye. Bye.